This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Any deal that reduces a rogue state's capacity to develop a nuclear weapon is a good deal. A revolution needs a counter-revolutionary threat, and the world is not a great counter-revolutionary threat. So in essence, the president's rolling the dice a little bit here. Yes, we should maintain JCPOA. Yes, we should confront the region. We should not put those two issues together. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of thecipherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders who talk candidly about what they've seen and what they think it means for global security. As a former CIA analyst, Morell is uniquely skilled at asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. President Trump's decision to decertify the Iranian nuclear deal has put Iran back in the headlines. Today, we hear from a man who is not a household name, someone who worked behind the scenes for years on the Iran problem. Norm Rule is a former colleague of mine and a man that senior policymakers turn to for answers to questions on Iran. Today, we get to hear from him. I'm Michael Morell. This is Intelligence Matters. It is a real pleasure to sit down with my very good friend and former colleague, Norm Rule. Norm, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Michael. This is a, this is a great opportunity. So Norm Rule is not a household name in America. Few people have heard the name Norm Rule. I've worked hard to make sure that doesn't happen. You served as a CIA officer for over 34 years. Correct. You were on the operations side of the business. Your job was to recruit other human beings to spy for the United States of America so that we could get the information that our nation's leaders needed to protect the country. That is correct. And also to work with foreign uh, countries to uh, develop partnerships that would achieve the same thing. And you were successful at all of that. You rose in the ranks. You became what was called in the old parlance, which is no longer 
what they use, a division chief, which is the person in charge of operations for a particular area of the world. This is sort of the pinnacle of the career on the operation side of the business. It was indeed quite the honor. Then in the fall of 2008, you were asked to take an assignment as the intelligence community's point person on Iran, the so-called mission manager for Iran. And you ended up doing that for nine years. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But maybe just take a couple of minutes to tell us, what is a mission manager? What does a mission manager for Iran do? Well, the concept of mission management was initiated by then DNI John Negroponte. And in essence, what he was looking for was a point person who could integrate the intelligence community's many efforts against the most difficult of targets. He established first the Iran mission manager, and he followed this up with the North Korea mission manager, which was a position filled by the extraordinary Joe Dutrani, who was one of your previous guests. The mission manager's job is actually fairly simple. I would put it into three points. The first is to integrate the intelligence community. That's sometimes a little more easily said than done, but in essence, it means bringing all the right people together to pool our resources, talents, and capabilities. The second part of a mission manager's job is to represent the analytic collection and enterprise capabilities in the intelligence community and to be able to pull those together to work challenges that policymakers establish. And finally, a mission manager's job is to work very closely with policymakers. I used to say that if a policymaker asked a question, I probably had failed. I wanted to be able to know their requirements so intimately that I would be able to predict what they needed. And then I would go to the analysts, who are all extraordinary, and the collectors, who are the same, and develop programs or responses that would give them the data they needed to to do their job. So this was, this was supposed to be a one-year assignment. It and was it indeed. It to be nine. It did. Something you reminded me of frequently. Indeed. And the reason, and, and I don't want to embarrass you here, but I will, the reason it turned out to be nine years is because every time that we wanted to pull you back to CIA, somebody very senior said, no, he's going to stay right where he is. I don't, I can't remember how many times I had that conversation with Tom Donnellan. You were in every deputies meeting on Iran, every principals committee meeting on Iran, every NSC meeting on Iran. Cabinet members would reach out to you and ask you questions directly. Your views were highly sought both in the Obama administration and in the Trump administration. And I think that's why why you ended up there for nine years. And on Friday, you retired um, from that job and from the Central Intelligence Agency. I did indeed. It was a magnificent ride working with some of the most extraordinary human beings uh, one can imagine. And it was a privilege for me to be able to have that opportunity. So what was it like to walk out the door? It was extraordinarily difficult. It was one of the longest walks of my career. I can remember almost every moment. Intelligence is not a job. It's not really even a career. It is, it is a calling. It is something as close to a religion as you can, you can achieve. And to give that up, to turn in that badge, was traumatic, I will confess. A large portion of my DNA has been focused on working in this community since my earliest years. I think I will never stop being an intelligence officer. I just have to. The Russians will certainly do th- that. Th- indeed, <laughs> the Russians and others will. But turning the badge in was indeed uh, quite quite the experience. But it was an honor to to hold that badge for as many years as I did. And I've never, never, never missed the fact that that is a privilege. I want to have you back at some point to, to talk about your career, what it's like to be an intelligence officer, what it's like to be an operations officer, to the extent that we can talk about that. But 
I think it would be incredibly valuable for people to understand what that job is like and what operations officers do for our country. So I'd like to have you back at some point. But today, Norm, I'd really like to focus on Iran because this is such an important issue and an important challenge. And what I'd like to do is start with some history. I was wondering if you could give us a, a sketch of how we got from the beginning of the nuclear weapons program to the negotiations that resulted in the deal. Can you kind of sketch that history a little bit? Sure. Uh, I need to begin by saying that America's relationship with Iran is complicated, charged, emotional. The relationship is fraught with uh, grievances, real and imagined, on each side. And it's one of the great tragedies of the 20th century. I'd like to maybe begin by giving a little different history. For the first 50 years of the 20th century, America was a paragon of virtue in Iran. Names that are forgotten, such as Howard Conklin Baskerville, who led a group of Azeri troops in a rebellion against the Qajar dynasty in 1906, it led to his death. And he is honored in Iranian museums today. Another person would have been William Morgan Schuster, who became the treasurer of Iran for a handful of months in 1911 and wrote a book called The Strangling of Persia, in which he talked about how the Iranian people needed to be protected from the rapacity of foreign powers. In 1945 and 1946, we saved Iran from Soviet efforts to absorb the northern part of the country and its oil fields. So moving to the nuclear program, what is fascinating is the nuclear program in Iran actually began with the United States. Eisenhower's Adams for Peace policy instigated the Iranian nuclear program. 1953, Eisenhower begins Adams for Peace. 1957, the Shah begins a nuclear program. 1967, the United States provides Iran with, a, I believe, a five-megawatt reactor. And then through the early 70s, you see the Shah showing greater and greater interest in a nuclear program. What is interesting and is often forgotten is the nuclear United... Nuclear power or nuclear weapons? Well, nuclear, nuclear program initially, but in 1974, the Shah, it is reported, made a comment to, a, uh, I believe, a French journalist in which he stated that Iran might very well acquire a nuclear weapon. This was around the time of the Indian nuclear blast. And the Ford and Carter administrations were very comfortable with this. And indeed, if you study the history of our engagement with Iran on nuclear issues in the 1970s, there are a lot of similarities to what is occurring at this time. So let's move forward. The revolution occurs. Iran's nuclear program is halted. In the early 80s, Iran restarts this program. Under President Rafsanjani, the Iranians start expanding this program. There are press reports that Iran obtained help from the Russians, the Chinese, the perhaps the Pakistanis. There are press reports that AQ Khan provided advice and perhaps parts of valuable equipment to the Iranians. And the Iranians expand this, this program through the 80s and into the early 90s. Is it clear at this point whether this is a weapons program or not, or is that hard to tell? It's hard to tell at this point. Where I would jump to, I would go to the 2007 declassified NIE. And in the declassified NIE, we state that in 2003, with high confidence, Iran had a weapons program, but it, that it had halted that program, at least through 2007, likely keeping the options open for that program to move forward. And halted it, why? Probably because we had such a massive focus on Iran in terms of international pressure, because the Iraq war had taken place, and the Iranians saw to their great shock that the U.S. so quickly defeated the Iraqis. We had troops on, on both sides. We had troops on both Iraq sides. and Afghanistan. That is correct. But at the same time, in 2003, an Iranian opposition group outed a uh, nuclear facility called Natanz. I've always thought that the Iranians probably suspected that they couldn't construct such facilities and keep these covert. So beginning in 2007, the Iranian program is outed. This was a tremendous debate in uh, the U.S. press and in front of Congress. Moving forward, 
forward, you see the Iranians begin to expand this program. Now, the Iranians are under terrific sanctions at this time. Iran is one of the most heavily sanctioned nations on the planet because of terrorist activities, because of the hostages in, in 1979. So the sanctions are rolling forward, but Iran is continuing to expand its program. In 2000, as I say, in 2003, you have Natanz. In 2012, it is disclosed, and President Obama disclosed this, that they have a facility known as Fordow. And Fordow is an important facility. And in my mind, I've always described it to myself as the place where Dr. No would put his nuclear weapons program. The Iranians claimed it was for research, but you've got a facility buried in a mountain that looks terrifically suspicious. Simultaneously, that the, is just the right size that for is, a nuclear weapons program. Exactly, exactly. And it's not the right size for a nuclear, for a program to support a nuclear power industry. Also in 2004, I believe, I might have been wrong, but I think it's 2004, the Iranians uh, began a plutonium reactor. And this plutonium reactor, they've always alleged was for industrial reasons, but I think the world has been suspicious that this was also meant for weapons purposes. So by the time the Bush administration is in place, sanctions, this becomes a serious problem. The Bush administration, particularly the Treasury Department and the State Department, begin a very robust series of sanctions against Iran. But nonetheless... And the purpose of those sanctions is to do what? To basically show the Iranian leadership that there are consequences for their for their behavior. That if they build a weapon, if they build a weapons program, if they move in these directions to include just the sanctions were engaged against their terrorist activities, there's a price to pay. Are these just U.S. sanctions at the time or are these more international? Well, they're primarily U.S. sanctions. However, beginning in around 2006, the Treasury Department significantly expanded these sanctions. And this took a serious bite out of Iran's economy. Iran's economy relies upon European financial channels, Asian financial channels. It relies upon oil customers. It relies upon a European insurance industry. There are a variety of commercial relationships that Iran needs to conduct its activities. And the Treasury Department significantly expanded this effort, and it took a serious toll on Iran's economy. Now, this said, although the Iranian economy was certainly feeling a lot of pain, would feel a lot more pain under the Obama administration, they didn't stop expanding their program. I think my view is the program was certainly slowed by these efforts and the technologies that Iran could obtain for its programs uh, didn't arrive because of sanctions. But nonetheless, when President Obama comes to office, Iran has mastered the enrichment cycle. Iran is building thousands of early generation centrifuges. Iran is dabbling with more advanced centrifuges. And the 2007 NIE said that Iran's intentions, at least at that point, was to build the capabilities so that they would be able to get to a weapon if they made the decision to do so. Fair? Yes, but I think, and I don't have the exact language in front of me, but I think it may have said more than that. I think it may have said with high confidence they had a nuclear weapons program in 2003. By 2007. But by right. 2007, that had been dismantled, but they intention. kept the options open. Keeping your options open. That was the intention. It, it might be useful to unpack what it takes to build a weapon, because I think that will feed into a discussion of how sanctions were rolled out. So as you know, the stool of a nuclear weapon has three legs. You need a delivery system, missiles, and the Iranians have that, plenty of it, in their medium-range ballistic missile program. You need a warhead to mate to a missile, and there is no evidence that I, of which uh, I've seen in the press, uh, of which any public reports on Iran's weaponization effort. But you need fissile material, you need a radioactive source. So you can obtain that warhead or that material two ways. You can buy it. So there is the concern, and a good concern, an important concern, that Iran might obtain this from North Korea. And that relationship deserves great focus. It is a relationship we certainly would not want to see blossom. Or you can develop that capacity internally. 
So when you look at Iran's nuclear program, you have to begin with the full cycle of the of the nuclear fissile material program. And that starts with mines. And the JCPOA will address that, as we can discuss. But Iran has two mines where you're mining uranium ore. So you've got basically the rocks that contain uranium. There are two isotopes that you're really looking that this ore mainly consists of, uranium-238, which isn't important for a nuclear weapons program, and uranium-235, which is in a minuscule quantity. So you take the ore and you then transform this into something that is called yellow cake, which is a much more concentrated version. You then convert this through a chemical reaction into a gas. And this allows you to then put this gas in centrifuges. And th this is on the internet. You can see pictures of Iranian officials walking near their, their centrifuge arrays. These are man-sized tubes that in essence spin the gas. And the heavier isotope is separated from the lighter isotope. The uranium-235, and that's the bad stuff. That is sucked It's the up. whole focus of the process it's to, the whole is to focus get to that 235. To get as pure an amount of uranium-235 as possible. Once you achieve a purity of about 3.7 to 4%, you're in the area of what you can use for low-enriched uranium for power supply. When you move up to, say, 20%, which is a tremendous amount of work, this is something that is useful for medical work, but it's dangerous. And once you go beyond 20, you're going into some very dangerous areas because the steps between 20 to 90%, which is weapons-grade uranium, it's a lot shorter of a, of a road to travel than the 3.6 to 20%. So once you reach 90%, you have weapons-grade material. So Obama comes to office, mm -hmm. and this is where things stand. And what happens? Well, the president first increases its sanctions pressure on Iran, and there is a significant multilateral effort to impress upon the Iranians that they, they really need not take this step, that there will be serious consequences. I think what the Iranians did that probably caused them the most damage with the international community, probably the Russians, in my view, this is, this is my opinion, would have been the Fordow facility itself. Because this facility is su such an egregious example of Iran building a program it should not have that I think it couldn't be defended by anyone, to include its previous allies. And that marshaled the international community against Iran. But frankly, at this point, if you are a policymaker, you're stuck with a situation where the program is slowly expanding. As I've stated, Iran is now developing more advanced centrifuges. They tend to use something known as the P1. It's, a, it's the initial generation. But they're working on what are known as the Iran version, the IRs2, the 4, the 5, the 6, the 7, the 8. And each of these generations are increasingly efficient. And efficiency means a smaller footprint. So it's harder to find. You can do more in a smaller area and you can develop a covert facility. So as the Iranians have clearly mastered the technology that is needed to produce should they ever decide to do so a weapon. So the Obama administration is now stuck with this problem. They ramp up the sanctions. Correct. And at some point, the sanctions bite hard enough that the Iranians are willing to sit down and have a conversation. That's true. Although when it comes to conversations with Iran, I think the general perception in the public is that it's very difficult to speak with Iran. And actually, it's rather easy. Now, getting the Iranians to say something you want to hear in return is a different story. But since the revolution, we've had periodic and even public profile contacts with the Iranians on Iraq, on Afghanistan, the Iran-Contra affair, of course, being, being infamous. But beginning under the Ahmadinejad administration in Iran, there are a series of contacts that say, can we discuss this program? And the Iranians say, yes, we are willing to have a discussion. Now, it is my personal belief that the totality of sanctions against Iran, its economy is rapidly deflating. They're losing something, I think 10% of their economy evaporated because of sanctions. These depression-like numbers. 
It is absolutely depression-like numbers, and there is growing unrest in Iran. But even before the 2009 unrest in Iran, you have significant concerns, uh, I think, even in the press by the Iranian people showing their dissatisfaction with the direction of that government. And the only way to change that direction is to restore Iran's trade ties with the West, to build jobs, to acquire foreign investment. And for Iran, that requires sanctions relief. So the nuclear deal in 2015... You were not a negotiator. You were not a decision maker like the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense or the President of the United States. You were the analyst. You were leading the intelligence community's effort on this, helping policymakers as they negotiated. So in simple terms, Norm, what did we get out of the deal and what did the Iranians get? Okay. One correction. I don't think I could ever be called an analyst. I represented oh, the intelligence I, I community. I don't know about that. I don't well, know about that. Well, uh, for, all, for all my analytic been colleagues. trained quite well over the last For all my years. analytic <laughs> colleagues who, who are listening, I, I want to make sure I'm never, I never portrayed as an analyst or a nuclear expert. But basically what we got was as follows. Beginning with the plutonium reactor, the IR-40 that Iran had at Iraq, that was dismantled. The heart of the plutonium reactor, something known as a calandria, was filled with cement. That can't be uncemented and put together. So in essence, we've checked the box that at least for a number of years, Iran cannot develop a weapon using the plutonium. They plutonium. have to build an entire... They have to build a massive entire uh, start over. structure. They have to start over. And this is something that would be hard to hide. The amount of low-enriched uranium the Iranians have acquired, that's about 12,000 kilograms. This is enough for a number of weapons if the Iranians were ever to choose to make a decision to do so. That is reduced to 300 kilograms, which is... Reduced a, a, by sending it out of the country. Correct. Ginormous reduction. And this reduction uh, now leaves Iran with only a tiny amount of low-enriched uranium, and they're required to maintain under JCPOA their low-enriched uranium at this level. Iran is... For how long? For, well, the nuclear deal that has been put before it is 150 pages for a region. And when you say how long for Iran's various benefits, each of the restrictions... Each of them is different. And 15 years is for, I think it's 15 years, 15 for, years the, for, that. for the LEU. Iran stick to the IR-1, its initial centrifuge for a number of years, for 15 years, I believe. They're not going to go above 3.67% enrichment, which is important. Fordow, the Dr. No facility, will be transformed into a research facility with only a small number of uh, centrifuges remaining, and it's heavily monitored. The IEA acquires uh, unprecedented access in Iran and is able to monitor every step. So we're talking about the mining, the milling, the producing the yellow cake, the transformation of the yellow cake into a gas and the centrifuge activity of Iran. Importantly, in my view, this is... That's this, unprecedented it is. for the IAEA. It, it is. And it's a, it's a massive program. And what I think is most important, and this is just how, how my mind works, the IAEA is also able to closely monitor the parts and pieces of Iran's nuclear program. When people think about dismantling centrifuges, uh, centrifuges are very delicate. They often break if you move them. But this deal did more than that. This deal pulled out the wires. It pulled out the pipes. So you have to imagine for Iran to reconstitute this, this is, this is the equivalent of saying it's not like somebody delivering a television to your house and putting it on the wall. They've got to put in all the wires into your house, all the plugs, et cetera, et cetera. So that adds to the amount of time Iran would require to build a weapon. And also the IE is able to monitor Iran's production of the pieces or the equipment used to construct centrifuges. And that's important because if you know how many parts they've got in the beginning and how many parts they're using, and you put those figures together, you're able to say they haven't diverted. Um, so it's more uh, difficult for them to cheat. It's very difficult. They, in essence, would have to create an entire industry 
and hide this from the world that would involve the acquisition of specialized material, the training of specialized personnel, the construction of specialized locations. This would be extraordinarily difficult. And for a lot of these inspection pieces, am I correct in saying that there is no there is no end date to them? They go on for a long time. Well, that is correct. So there are some restrictions. And again, people can read the JCPOA agreement. It's online along with the- I don't recommend it, by the way. <laughs> it's, if you, it's, it's quite quite lengthy, quite lengthy. And the restrictions do fade over time in, in some places, but really the supervision by the IE does last forever. I, w- I want to make another point, Michael, that is sometimes missed as you, uh, as you look at this deal. This deal has a tremendous amount of science in it. When people look at the Iran deal, they often see a diplomatic achievement. And that's certainly true. The State Department put some extraordinarily wise and hardworking people to this. I've never seen a more hardworking group of people in my entire career than the people who worked the JCPOA deal. But there was also a vast technical side to these negotiations by all of the P5 negotiators and the Iranians. And each of these restrictions has hard science behind it. There was uh, real value to having Secretary Moniz, the, the Secretary of Energy at the table. Secretary Moniz, who was the head of the MIT physics department, I believe he has a PhD in theoretical physics. As I put it, he knows how to program a VCR. <laughs> and uh, this is a fellow who, when he says that the science is sound behind an agreement, it's difficult to dispute that easily. At the end of the day, this is not something that you were ever asked to opine on, but from Norm's perspective, good deal, bad deal? What's your view? Well, again, my personal view is any deal that reduces a rogue state's capacity to develop a nuclear weapon is a good deal. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't have other restrictions where the deal should stand in the way of our constraining other activities. But if you if you look at the deal, as the negotiators themselves have publicly stated, it was only aimed at constraining Iran's nuclear program. It's hard to say that it doesn't have profound advantages. Now, And I forgot to ask you, the Iranians got two things, right? They got sanctions relief, and they got a recognition of their right to enrich. Correct. And the recognition of their right to enrich is something that was very powerful for the Iranians because they are a people with a great history of education and scientific achievement, and they didn't want to throw away that achievement. But I think opponents of the deal would also focus upon this and say, we don't want countries to have this right to enrich. That was one of the earliest complaints by opponents. We wouldn't. But doesn't every country have a right to enrich if they're in the NPT? Well, the NPT is a little vague on this point. And this is now where I think you need to turn to diplomatic lawyers. And uh, NPT, by the way, is non-proliferation treaty. The non-proliferation treaty. treaty. But the, every country, it's, it's vague on this point. But it's not a good idea. I think it's not good policy to allow every country in the world to develop the capacity that could be turned to a, a nuclear weapons program. Okay, so two of the critiques. I want to get your reaction to two of the critiques that you often hear. One is that we had the Iranians by the throat. We talked about the depression-like numbers in the economy. We could have gotten more on the nuclear side. We could have gotten more restrictions. We could have gotten more inspections. What's your reaction to that critique? Well, I have often heard that we had the Iranians on the ropes, and there's no question about that. The Iranians can talk economy of resistance. They can speak of their capacity to stand on their own, but their economy was going through a terrible, terrible state. In my head, I've always described this as the sanctions were sufficient to bring Iran to the table, but it would have taken a lot more over many, many years 
if ever, to bring Iran to the table where they would accept any deal at any price. Diplomacy is the art of compromise. I think one of the best metrics of compromise for this deal is there are many Iranians who run happy with this deal on their own. The supreme leader uh, has been very vocal in Iran of his dissatisfaction with the deal, and many Iranians feel they didn't get enough sanctions relief up front, and that the U.S. in particular has not been as sincere in providing the support it needs. In fact, I think the Supreme Leader at one point stated that he was showing heroic flexibility, but that on his side, like a wrestler, I think the quote is like a wrestler who may show flexibility in dealing with opponent that doesn't cause the wrestler to ever forget he's dealing with an opponent. And then the, the second critique is one you've already hinted at, that the deal did not cover all the other bad stuff the Iranians are doing to include long-range missile development, of which there's really only one purpose to have an ICBM, and that's to put a nuclear weapon on top of it. They, they don't have an ICBM, though. I think right. there's a space launch right, 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 program right. But, which but could go in that direction. That's the beginning right. of it, right? Absolutely. That's the big, was, was the beginning of it for North Korea. That's my concern. Absolutely. That's the beginning of it for a lot of people. Absolutely. But even more important, their regional misbehavior. So their support to terrorism, their support to insurgencies, their support to the brutality of Bashar al-Assad, their desire that Israel be wiped off the face of the planet, at least the supreme leader's desire, their desire to export their revolution, their desire to be the hegemonic power in the region. The detention of Americans. The detention of Americans. The refusal to cooperate seriously on the Robert Levinson case. So the second critique is you had them by the throat and you didn't go after any of that stuff. What's your reaction to that critique? Well, first of all, that's a policy call. And that's a policy call as to whether or not someone believed that's achievable. I personally do not believe that was achievable when these negotiations began. I think the Obama administration decided that they would address the most serious strategic threat faced by the United States in the region. That was Iran's nuclear weapons capability. And then would continue to work these other threats separately. And the then Secretary of State, John Kerry, uh, and the administration itself, and as rightly said, other tools could be employed on that. Now, the question becomes, were those other tools employed? And one of the other critiques of, of the deal is that Europe would pull back from the sanctions regime that it had supported and would be reluctant to join a second sanction regime to push back in this behavior. And, and candidly, I believe that has been the case. You have seen European ambassadors who will stand in public and speak rather loudly about the need now to protect their commercial interests, which are relatively modest. But they are somewhat vague as to what steps they will take to push back against Iran for its malign regional adventurism, for its detention of nationals from various countries. They'd rather sell stuff. Well, let's just say they've been most vocal on protecting commercial interests. And your personal view is that this behavior in the region is destabilizing and that the world would be, the Middle East would be a better place if the Iranians didn't do this. I mean, you're not, you're not soft on this question. No. In fact, I believe it is one of the most powerful and negative transformational events of recent years. I believe Iran's export of technologies, and I would point to Secretary Tillerson's statement on Iran's provision of missile technology to its proxies in the region, is tremendously destabilizing. It's absolutely irresponsible, and it will put the, expose the regime to terrific pressures in the future. Likewise, Iran is now creating a series of proxy groups who are learning uh, skills from Iran's military, from its Quds force, who will, over time, develop into some variation, depending upon upon their local DNA of Hezbollah. And you simply must ask yourself a question. Is the region safer with more missile technology in the hands of groups who are close to Hezbollah in their DNA? And it's a very easy question to answer. And I believe it's something we must address or future years will see Iran with the capacity
capacity through its surrogates to pressure such global trade routes as the Babel Mandab next to Yemen, through which transits a tremendous amount of the world's trade, as well as the Eastern Mediterranean and, of course, the Strait of Hormuz. So here's my question for you, Norm, because I agree with you 100%. And, and you and I have talked about this a lot of times, and you know that I believe exactly the same thing. My question is, why hasn't the United States, and, and this is not only the Obama administration, but it is every administration going back, why haven't we taken a tougher line on Iranian behavior in the region? The only time that I can remember, correct me if I'm wrong, the only time that I can remember is at the end of the Reagan administration when the Iranians started targeting commercial tankers in the Persian Gulf. It was the only time that the United States pushed back really hard. Sure. I can't remember, I can't remember a, a broad strategic approach to pushing back on Iranian misbehavior, which has been going on for a very, very long time. This is not new. I agree completely. And in fact, although I believe the JCPOA deal should be maintained because of its benefits, rigorously enforced, and as we look at Iran's behavior in coming years, we need to keep in mind that the same people who are running Iran's missile program and its malign regional adventurism are the people who will run its nuclear program. Therefore, as we think whether or not extensions are appropriate, we should judge them by their behavior. But, but if you look at Iran's behavior in the region, why we haven't responded, I honestly don't yeah. know. The catalog of Iranian-supported crimes against the United States is vast. I was transformed as an intelligence officer by their attack on our embassy I believe, October 23rd of 1983. I knew... In Beirut. In Beirut. And this occurred after the April attack. You have our chief of station, William Buckley. You have the hostages who are taken. You have... The Marine years, barracks. The bomb. Marine barracks bomb. You have a massive... Hobart category. Tower. You have Hobart Towers. So in 1988... You have the provision of advanced IEDs to Shia militia in Iraq, which killed thousands of coalition soldiers. Absolutely. And I believe, if I recall, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs once at one time stated that at least 500 American dead may be attributed to Iranian-supported activities, and that would not include the thousands who were wounded in these attacks. So you talk about the pushback on Iran. I will say that in my career, there have been many near misses. When policymakers I have watched, I can think of more than a handful of times when they came very close to some profoundly serious action. In 1988, I would think it was June, no, I could have the date wrong, April, uh, 1988 in April, when the Samuel B. Roberts was struck by a mine and heroically defended. It's one of the great, great acts of heroism in naval history. And that turned into the tanker war. And Iran was pushed back in that regard. And we had the tragic, I think this led, unfortunately, to the tragic shoot down, unintended, no matter what the Iranians say, by the USS Vincennes of an Iran airplane 655. But Iran has not had tremendous pushback. And I honestly think it's, it's long overdue. And I think if we don't have an international effort, and it must be a multinational effort to push back on Iran, we will have a much more dangerous region in the, in the future. Okay, let's come back to that. So now let's talk about presidential certification of the nuclear deal, not required by the agreement with the Iranians. Correct. This is something imposed by Congress on the executive branch. Correct. Every 90 days, tell us whether the Iranians are compliant or not compliant with this agreement, correct? Correct. And the certification, what does the certification cover? What is the president supposed to look at as he tells Congress whether they're living up to the agreement or not? I think there's some confusion on this. Well, again, all language can be described best by lawyers and the policymakers who are interpreting that language. But in my mind, it falls into two pieces. Are the Iranians executing their JCPOA obligations? Yes or no. And in this regard, the IEA 
has claimed that Iran is doing what it's supposed to do. And I believe a number of the president's advisors maybe even have publicly stated this. There is language. The uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs in correct. testimony before Congress said they are not in material breach. Correct. That is correct. At the same time, the JCPOA does talk about the deal producing stability in the region, producing a more... In uh, its preamble. In its preamble. And that language is the same words. And the document has, has words on various, uh, various sections. Those words are also on the paper. Iran is not... The deal is not producing a safer region in terms of Iran's malign regional adventurism, its massive and growing missile program. And I think that has been publicly the president's position since the very beginning. He has shown his, his deep dissatisfaction with the deal and his non-certification, in essence, turns this over to Congress to decide in the next 60 days what they would like to do in terms of reimposing sanctions on Iran. Now, although this is an America-only issue at present, if Congress decides to reimpose a vast number of sanctions, to include secondary sanctions on those states that deal with Iran, that could uh, quickly unravel the Iranian, uh, the JCPOA agreement. I think um, the president also has has to certify that this deal continues to be in the national security interest of the United States. Indeed, and I didn't state that, but that in essence circles back to the issue of is the regime safer? Is Iran becoming a more responsible international player? And although I believe, based upon the IEA published reports, that Iran is indeed executing its JCPOA obligations, albeit I sometimes think minimal in, in a minimal and legalistic fashion, at the same time, Iran's missile program and its regional activity are terrifically destabilizing and moving in a very bad direction. So it seems, based on, based on the press coverage, which I've been voraciously reading, it seems as if the key people in Congress who are focused on this don't want to reimpose the sanctions now. They want to pass a piece of legislation that says, here are all of our expectations for the Iranians above and beyond the JCPOA. Here's what we expect. And if they cross any of these lines, then we'll reimpose the sanctions. So the idea is basically to pressure the Iranians back to the negotiating table. And if you don't come back to the negotiating table and give us these things that we want, maybe it's a second agreement, maybe it's changes to the first agreement, then we'll reimpose the sanctions. So it's a pressure tactic. Two questions. One is, would it be at all possible to convince the Europeans to join us in that effort? And number two, would it be possible to bring the Iranians back to the negotiating table? Let me hit this from really four quick directions. First, my guess is as good as yours on where Congress will go. So what you put They might forward, not be able to do anything. Correct. What you put forward may very well be how they will go. I, I don't really know. But I think as a pressure tactic, my second point would be that this is also aimed at telling the Europeans and telling the Russians and the Chinese, who have done very little to constrain Iran's activities. And indeed, you have the possibility that Iran will obtain weapons from the Russians in the near future. In fact, I should mention on JCPOA, two important criticisms are that I believe in October of 2020, constraints on Iran's conventional weapons program will end. And, uh, and this means they can purchase conventional weapons from abroad. And in 2023, constraints on their missile program will also go away. So I think Congress may well be thinking, this is my guess, how do you aim in that direction as well and get the Europeans 
and the Russians and the Chinese to take this, this threat seriously. So now the question becomes, can you bring the Europeans to the table? I believe so. I have worked extensively with European colleagues over the years. I am familiar with the uh, European negotiators. And Europe also opposes proliferation of missile technology and proliferation of Iran's malign behavior in the region. But candidly, my personal view is they have not paid sufficient attention to this and they need to get with the program. But do you think it's possible? With Europe, I believe it's possible. and I've, Not the I, Russians and Chinese. Not yet. Not yet. Although I think the Russians would not be uh, delighted to see a proliferation of missile technology in the region. And even with the Chinese, who uh, have interest in Red Sea trade, I'm not sure it's in their interest to allow explosive boats and ship cruise missiles uh, to be in the hand of Houthis along the Babel Mandab, which is narrower than the Strait of Hormuz, by the way. So now the question becomes, can you bring the Iranians to the table? And I think that is certainly doable, but it requires several steps. Iran will make a lot of noise about the president's decision. But I think in Tehran right now, they are thinking, let's see how the Europeans react. Is this truly going to be a multinational threat? Is this truly going to be a multinational coalition against us? Because it was that multinational coalition that brought them to the table in the first place. So right now, I think they're going to be watching to see how we engage the Europeans and the Russians, the Chinese, the United Nations Security Council. And the United Nations is important because their authorities will compel other states who are sometimes unwilling to enthusiastically cooperate to be forced to cooperate on sanctions uh, issues against Iran. I think the, the Iranians right now are going to first say, let's see what happens next. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me as if you're saying that what the president is doing here is a risk worth taking. Let me say that I think it's a, we have a series of regional issues that need to be addressed. And if we don't address them now, we'll have great difficulty in addressing them in the future. So in essence, the president's rolling the dice a little bit here. What he's looking for in the roll of the dice is that the Europeans will come on board and the Iranians will come back to the table and we'll be able to deal with some of these other issues that haven't been dealt with. And we'll do it because the Iranians don't want those sanctions to come back. The role of the dice that we don't want to come up is the collapse of the nuclear deal. That is correct. But I think it's also important to think, what happens if we don't do this? First, we have thousands of Americans who live in the Middle East who, whose lives are going to be at risk by these surrogates and these missiles. Second, you have our allies. And it, we have tremendous friends in the region. Protection of the interests of these partners is, is very important and should be, should be high on our list because they've stood with us in the past. They are our friends and our economy relies upon them. There are strategic interests such as global trade, as I, as I talk about, the Strait of Hormuz, the Babel Mandab. We need to protect this. So I think there is, there is both the roll of the dice to say, if we do this, what could happen to unravel the deal? And we should not do that. I strongly believe JCPOA should be maintained rigorously enforced. And if Iranian behavior does not change, we should extend agreements. And I would focus first on the conventional and missile so, restrictions. So, so this is really important. So are you saying that we shouldn't be gambling with JCPOA and we should separate these issues? Nuclear is, is in a box for the next 15 years, 12, 10, 12, 15 years. Don't mess with it. But let's deal as hard as we can with the regional misbehavior and the missiles. But let's do it separately. Let's not link them. Well, well, yes and no. That's what I'm struggling with here. So, yes, we should maintain JCPOA. Yes, we should confront the region. We should not bring, put those two issues together. The problem becomes in the levers you pull to use against Iran. Iran is going to be most concerned about what happens to its financial transactions, its oil flows, 
its ability to move tankers and personnel, its trade. Those levers will need to be considered as we look at coercion options against Iran to push back on their regional behavior and their their unreasonably large and growing missile program. So in some ways, although it's easy to say and appropriate to say we should separate the concepts of JCPOA and their regional behavior, in actuality, the mechanics are going to make that tough. So Norm, there's a common view, conventional wisdom, that there's a political struggle going on inside of Iran between the so-called hardliners and so-called moderates. And I know that a lot of people don't like that word moderate. I hate that word. But that there is this struggle going on over the future of the country and whether it remains a revolutionary state or whether it becomes a more normal nation. Is that real? Is that struggle real or is it overstated? Well, I've always believed that that revolutions like empires generally last about three generations. You saw this in Russia. You see this in Iraq. You see this in a variety of places. They transform. Iran is now moving into middle age as a revolution. The leadership that was brought into power by 1979, they're dying off. And you're now moving into an era where you have a more authoritarian state. Indeed, you have clerics who run Iran, but you have as many people who were molded by the Iran-Iraq war and Iran's regional activities as anything else. President Rouhani's recent election shows that the Iranian people want change. They want engagement. But it's equally important to say that the Iran's security infrastructure, the IRGC, remains significantly in charge of many sectors of the economy. It remains significantly entrenched in the power circles. And I think it's it's important to say that as you consider President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif, that they don't have much voice on many of the issues we, we care most about. And as we look at this struggle, I think we have to, in essence, consider the possibility that a Iran may not yet be ready for change on the issues we most care about. That doesn't mean we shouldn't engage the Iranians. I believe we should, if only to seek the release of our American citizens who have been detained under absurd charges and find out the fate of Robert Levinson. But we need to recognize that these two structures in Iran are both facing each other, and one has not yet proven the capability of overcoming the other yet. And should we keep this in mind as we deal with the nuclear issue and the regional misbehavior issue? How should we think about that affecting our policy? Up front, I believe engagement is a great thing. And I've given some reasons as to reasons we need to talk to the Iranians. But I think having Iran understand what the West is about, having them understand our messages clearly, not through intermediaries, allows us to ensure that there is at least a serious dialogue in this complex polity as they decide how they want to respond to the world. I think the Iranian people need to be told clearly it's up to them to choose their government. It's up to them to select their president. But I think it's also fair to say that when they do so, there is the responsibility that that government behave as a responsible international player. And that there will be consequences, consequences that could affect the Iranian people themselves if this government continues its terrific misbehavior. You said something earlier, which I think is important. You said in talking about pushing back on their regional misbehavior, that it be important that it's not just the United States, but it's it, right. And I think this plays into the it's harder for the hardliners to blame everything on us, right, when it's the entire international community is coming at them. I agree. And in fact, if you make this a, an international problem for Iran versus an American problem, it undercuts one of the primary pillars of the regime. Iran remains a revolution. You know, Henry Kissinger's famous line is that a country or a cause is still in place, but a revolution needs a counter-revolutionary threat. And the world is not a great counter-revolutionary threat. The United States is. I would unpack that a little more to say that we need to confront Iran in the region differently as well. It is important that someone else be a voice for the Shia of the region. 
And I think our GCC partners, and we have watched the Saudi leadership recently engage Muqtada al-Sadr, which I think is a fascinating and visited important Riyadh. Visited Riyadh. I think the more of that that is done by the world will undercut Iran's message also abroad. That's the great potential of Iraq. I agree. So, Norman, we've taken a lot of your time here. I just want to ask you one more question, which is, if you had one point to make to Americans about Iran, what would you say? And if you had one point to make to Iranians about America, what would you say? To Americans, I would say that Iran is an ancient, proud, and important country. We can't ignore it. We've got to learn to deal with it, recognize some of their interests, but we cannot stop our efforts in containing its malign behavior or it will result in the loss of American lives. Let me just add one point to that, which I think flows, which is that even Iran as a normal nation, even an Iran that is not misbehaving, is going to have considerable influence because of its history and culture and population. 80 million Iranians will have a massive influence in the region and should be playing a role in solving some of the region's problems on refugees, on counter-narcotics issues, on environmental issues, on piracy in the Red Sea. I mean, they should be playing a role. Dealing with that Iran would be a Dealing, good problem to have. That is what we should, what okay. we should aim for. So that's, that's to the Americans, right? To the Iranians. Stop. To the Iranian people, I would say they can't ignore the malign behavior that Iran is conducting in the region. What's the fundamental ambition there? What, what, uh, what, what that's a they complicated want? question. So, so when I think of Iranian DNA, and this is Norm's view of the world, I would sort of say there are three components to this. First, as in Thucydides is very much in vogue right now, Iran responds based on its interests, fear, and honor. Iran has an imperial heritage. Going back 3,000 years, the Shah himself had the famous uh, Persepolis uh, celebration of 1971, where I think he had the most expensive dinner ever held for 600 guests to celebrate 2,500 years of the monarchy. I don't think Iran's leaders have ever been able to forget that they're not an empire. Secondly, I think when you're looking at Iran, it remains a revolution. Revolutions have an inherent expansion capacity to them. And when you look at the Quds Force, it is a unique entity in the world. It has one purpose, and it is to conduct malign activity on behalf of the revolution abroad. I think that when you look at Iran's DNA, you also have to recognize that it is a country that has suffered from an anti-imperialism concern for many years. The Russians, the British, even they have perceived the Americans have been against them. So this DNA of pushing out the West, pushing out foreigners is a very powerful part of who they are. Pride and insecurity at the same Pride, time. Pride, insecurity, interest, fear, honor. Norm, thank you very much for spending this time with us and for talking to us so soon after you uh, turned that badge in. Michael, which I know from experience is not an easy thing. It isn't. If I may make one closing comment, the American people should know that the men and women of the American intelligence community who work the Iran issue and other issues are some of the most extraordinary, selfless, hardworking people imaginable. They achieve the impossible routinely and uh, is been the greatest honor of my career to be counted among them. Thank you, Norm. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. That was Norm Rule. I'm Michael Morrell. Join us next week on Intelligence Matters. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. 
Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. 